If you, uh, if you do have a Bible with you, can I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, for those who are visiting with us since the beginning of the year, we have spent Sunday evenings working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And tonight, as I've said already, is our last look at this prison letter. Uh, I know we certainly haven't covered everything, uh, but I hope that what we have covered has been helpful. Last week we looked at Paul's household code of conduct whenever he wrote to wives and to husbands and to kids and to parents telling them how to get on with each other, how they should live together and relate to each other as Christians. And that was the critical bit that Paul was writing to to Christians about the importance of transformational relationships. And we finished at verse 21 of chapter 3. And so I'd like us to pick it up uh, at verse 22 of chapter 3 and read down to verse 6 of chapter 4, which I know means we're going to miss uh, a, a large chunk of this letter, uh, but we may revisit it again in, in the future. Before I read, can I ask you a question? Uh, does anyone know where many people spend something like an estimated 88,000 hours of their lives? The, uh, that, well, the answer is work. Uh, that is something like 70% of your waking moments are spent at work or in work. Uh, and that's really going to be one of the subjects we look at tonight. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3 from verse 22. Slaves Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, what a great phrase, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord uh, as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everything. Please take your seats. You will remember that that last week we said that in New Testament culture, people lived, or many people lived, under the same roof, or certainly adjoining roofs. There was the uh, biological immediate family, but then, in addition, there were also slaves and or temporary employees. And so Paul's household code of conduct, as we called it, uh, included instructions to slaves and to slave owners and their masters. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that one of the unique features of Paul's household code of conduct, because there were many of these household codes of conduct uh, at that time and in this culture, but what was unique about Paul's was a couple of things. One, it emphasized the lordship of Christ. But secondly was this emphasis on mutual responsibility. So he didn't just offer advice to wives 
and kids, he also offered advice to husbands and parents. And here, in what we have just read together, he doesn't just address slaves, but he also addresses their masters or their owners. And he sets out the responsibilities that slaves and masters have towards one another. Now, as we begin to look at this, I realize that the issue of slavery seems to be a bit of a non-issue in our 21st century Western European context. I mean, thinking about wives and husbands and kids and parents, well, that's all very pertinent. But this subject of slavery appears to be a bit of a non-relevance, a bit of an irrelevance, maybe. But actually, what I want us to do, and I think it is entirely appropriate, is I I want to relate and connect and apply what Paul writes to our working environments, and to the places where you work day in and day out, to your lives as doctors, accountants, teachers, landscape gardeners, occupational therapists, physios, social workers, and I'm sure I've missed lots of people, but you know your world. Uh, So I really want to try to connect what Paul writes here to that. Now, I also know that some of you are thinking that slavery is actually alive and well in your workplace Uh, and that your boss is a slave driver and demands slave labor, but you need to sort of let go of that thought, okay? And someone may offer to pray with you later if you still hold on to that. But uh, you just need to let go of that. What I want to do is, first of all, just paint a bit of a a picture of slavery in Paul's day because it was quite different from how we probably think of slavery. Slavery was a widespread and actually an accepted feature of the social fabric and the economic system at this time. Many who became slaves were either born into it or else they were prisoners of war. And it is estimated that over 85%, I find this quite startling when I looked into it, but over 85% of the population of Roman Italy were slaves at this time. And there was definitely a dark side to slavery, but there were also many positive aspects to it at this time. For the most part, the life of a slave actually was not an altogether negative experience. Many masters did look after their slaves. They cared for them. And more and more humanitarian legislation was passed in their favor to help protect them. Slaves could accumulate wealth. They could buy their freedom. They could start their own businesses. Plus, it was often seen as an opportunity to get educated, to be trained in a craft or a profession. And it was a potential route to a new life-sustaining mode of being. And so it wasn't altogether a negative thing, although, as I say, there was a dark side to it. But one of the key things to bear in mind as we read these verses is that Paul was writing to a local church. He was writing to a group of Christians, some of whom were Christian slaves, but some were also slave owners and slave masters. And what he was trying to tease out was, well, how, since you have embraced your Christian faith, How are you going to relate to one another within church, within a community of faith, when, yes, you are slaves and masters, but you're now brothers and sisters in Christ? So how does that change the dynamic of the relationship? And some slaves probably thought, well, if I don't put in a day's work, or if I slack off a little, then it won't be such a big day, because my master is a Christian, and he'll forgive me. Because that's the Christian thing to do. But equally, some masters maybe thought, well, I can take advantage of my Christian slave because they're going to go the extra mile. 
they're going to just do that little bit more than is expected of other slaves because they are Christians. They're not going to ask for any perks. They're not going to ask for thanks. They're not going to ask for overtime pay. And so Paul needed to put pen to paper to offer advice about these new working relationships that these Christians found themselves in. And in in short, here's the thrust of his counsel. The outward form of your relationship is always maintained. Some of your employees, some of your employers. But the fact that you're both Christians, that you're fellow believers in the Lord, that means that the inner heart of your relationship has been transformed. And that's an interesting thing to actually think through because what does that actually look like in the workplace? Whenever you work for someone who is a Christian and you are a Christian, how does that affect your relationship in work? What does that relationship look outside of the work context? What happens if you find yourself in church with your boss? And how does someone who employs people feel about worshipping with and being part of a church where there are people who they employ? There are real issues there to think through. And I don't really want to look at it specifically, but I do want to set out some general principles which I hope will be helpful. I want to look at what Paul said to slaves and through those instructions that he offered, what Paul, I think, would teach us about work today. And then we're going to look at the exact instructions that he offers to slave owners, masters or employers. The first thing that I want to look at, verse 22 and verse 23, is that work is worship. And I know this is, this is material that possibly many of you have heard before, so in a sense this is just a reminder. But work is worship. The, the thing I love about this is that Paul is very realistic in his understanding of work. I don't know how you feel about work. How you feel about the prospect of tomorrow morning. Uh, it is demanding at times. It's even mundane. It can be exciting, but it can be difficult. But the reality is that's just life. And as a result, the slave in this context was probably tempted to cut corners, get away with the bare minimum. Whatever he could do, he did. But there were times whenever, maybe, he just because he was working for a or because he worked in this new environment, he thought to himself, you know, I don't need to work as hard or as intensely maybe as I once did. And I only need to work hard whenever I'm being watched. Whenever someone's looking over my shoulder. But Paul here actually elevates work above the level of necessity. Something that we have to do to make ends meet. It is more, Paul says, than an inescapable chore. For Paul, work is a profoundly spiritual issue. It's an act of of worship to God. And so slaves are to obey their masters, not to win their favor. But look at the end of verse 22. And this is the phrase that keeps appearing, we said last week, it appears nine times in the space of a number of verses. But Paul says, listen, slaves, obey your masters with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. You see, there is no area of our lives, and we know this, and work included, that is outside the Lordship of Christ. That as Christian people, we must not only work for those we work for, but we must work as if we are working onto the Lord. And so Paul writes in verse 23, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Work is not and never should be a separate compartment of our faith. 
The reason Paul wrote like this is because we know that he understood the Old Testament teaching about work. Paul knew that God had designed human beings to work. It was part of God's creation plan for us to work. Before the fall, Adam worked. Work is not a consequence of the fall, even though at times it feels like that. Work was and work still is a gift from a wise creator. And I know that the fall corrupted work and that as a result of sin's intrusion into our world, work for Adam became a painful toil, that the ground did become harder to work. And as a result of our fallen world, our experience of work will continue to carry the inevitable scars of God's curse. And therefore for some, and at times it is a drudgery, and it is monotonous, and for others, and at times it's creative and it's enjoyable and it's fulfilling, But even for the most enthusiastic of us, work is never perfect. But despite the fact that we live in a fallen world, we do face the challenge. And one of the challenges we face as Christians is to redeem work and to offer it as an act of worship to God. We have just been singing songs. We have been praying together. Now we're listening to a sermon as acts of worship. I hope that that is what those are. But on Monday morning, tomorrow at 9.30, we are engaged in worship every bit as much as we are at 10.30 or 7 p.m. on a Sunday. Our whole lives and every single aspect of them should be an offering of worship to God. Mark Green, who has written lots on this issue from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, says work is not an intermission from the main action. It's not something we do that we can, uh, so that we can then do other things. It's an integral part of the main action, an intrinsic part of our walk with God. And so Paul writes, work with sincerity of heart. Work with reverence for the Lord, as if you're working for the Lord and not for human masters. See, whenever we get to work, there is a real sense in which God is there waiting for us. We don't take God to work which is sometimes the way we talk about it God meets us there whenever we walk through those doors ultimately God is your work supervisor throughout the week not just your line manager your foreman or your board of governors God is your work supervisor and therefore Paul says do it as unto the Lord I know it's easy to say it's difficult to do but if we can understand work as worship, it will or it should affect not only the quality of our work, but also the integrity of our attitude, that we will do the best we can. And that was what I think Paul was trying to get across to these slaves, that they will do the best they can. They won't be content to wing it. They won't cut corners. They won't slack off when the boss isn't watching or around. They won't adopt a negative attitude because if we do, in our approach to work, then our worship of God suffers. And we maybe do lack an integrity of attitude. So the way that we answer the phone, wash the dishes, teach the kids, operate the machine, turn in an essay, advise our boss, or close the day, as well as the way we preach sermons, should all be an act of worship to God. You know, one of the the biggest dangers with 21st century Christianity 
is that we divide our nine to five from our five to nine. So outside of the workplace, we aspire to Christian values and we believe in biblical truth and we behave in a certain way. But when we get to work, our values and our actions and our attitudes sometimes can contradict what we actually believe. And we have that gap developing that we've talked about throughout this series between what we believe and how we behave. So Christianity can be, and and this is often a problem, perceived as an after-hours interest. It's a bit of a hobby. It's something we do outside of work time when actually it's about a whole life commitment. That every single moment of every day and all that we are doing should be an act of worship to God and a reflection of our faith. And I think whenever we can get to that place, or as we get to that place, then we, we avoid confusing people between what we say we believe and how we behave. Our Christian faith has got a pact everywhere. So work is worship. Secondly, look at verse 24, because Paul says that work is rewarding. And again, you're confronted, if you look there, at Paul's realism. Because one of the reasons we work is to get paid. It's to earn a reward. Money is still a powerful incentive to work, even if it's not our ultimate motivation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the situation that Paul is addressing here is one where the workers might not get the rewards they justly deserve. So what should they do then? If you don't get what you deserve, what should you do? Do you protest? Do you hit the picket line? Do you down tools? What do you do? Well, in Paul's specific context of the ancient household, the answer is no. He says, listen, you've got to see the bigger picture. You know, you will receive, and I think this is really interesting, he says, listen, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. You may not always be treated justly. You may not always be treated fairly, but God is a God of justice. And one day he will right all the wrongs and he will welcome you into an inheritance that we know from elsewhere in the Bible makes anything we receive from our work down here pale into insignificance in eternal terms. Now, I know we've got to be careful here because does that mean in our very different industrialized context, maybe at times in personal context, that Christians should never protest or down tools or even strike? Now, I'd love to open up a discussion about that, but I would be so scared too. But I wonder what, what is our approach to that. I, and I'm not sure you can assert from those verses that no, they never should. The context I know is important. And so such action may sometimes be necessary in the cause of justice, especially justice for the sake of others. And in our day, that is a very relevant issue. But it's also a delicate issue. And it's one that must be thought through carefully and biblically and with great wisdom. And I'm not going to go there. Okay. So work is worship. Work is rewarding, says Paul. But thirdly, work is dignifying. Look at verse 24. It was a point he's making is this. No matter what you do, no matter what you do, or how humble a job you think you have, from our society's perspective, doing it for the Lord transforms your job into something special. There is no such thing as menial work in the kingdom of God. And we also need the ditch, the idea that we're doing a worthless job until something worthwhile comes along. That is such a warped and and twisted thinking, I believe, from a God perspective. Because whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. And remember, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. 
And therefore, work, whatever that job is that you have, has got great dignity. So Paul addresses slaves, but then he turns his attention to masters. And it seems a wee bit out of balance because there are four verses and heaps of words to slaves, and yet there's one verse and only a handful of words to masters, which seems unfair. And yet what Paul says to masters is dynamite. They must behave with justice. And then he says, also, remember judgment. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair. And we know again that this just reflects the heart of God because justice is critical. Being even-handed is essential and human rights do matter to our God. And then he reminds masters, listen, you don't have the last word. You are answerable to a higher authority because you have a master who is in heaven. One who one day is going to hold you accountable for how you have treated those who have worked for you. And the parallels here are very clear, disturbingly clear, maybe for those here who do employ people. That you are called to manage your staff with integrity and with justice. Because one day you're going to have to give an account to God, your ultimate master in heaven. And then we come to the, the last five verses of, of our reading for this evening. Verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4. Because Paul then addresses a slightly broader question of how Christians... So far he's been talking about this is how you relate to your family. To your wives, to your husband, kids and parents. Here's how you relate as employees and employers. But now I want to talk about how you should relate to the wider community. And there are two things that come through here in these verses. Two th- he says, I want to stress the importance of prayer. And I want you to see the place of wisdom. And he begins by saying, I want you to devote yourselves to prayer. And apparently he uses the most inclusive word for prayer that he can find. He's encouraging them to engage in every kind of prayer. So in prayers of thanksgiving, in prayers of adoration, in prayers of petition. So pray for others, but also pray for yourselves. And Paul needed to be prayed for. And so he urged them to pray for him. But he also says, listen, devote yourselves to prayer. And Paul knew that if he was going to speak the truth about Jesus, and it gets picked up in these verses, that no matter how able he was, no matter how articulate he was with his words, Paul needed to be prayed for. And we all know how important prayer is. And we're going to be looking at this in quite a bit of detail over the next few weeks. And we know that we need to be praying for one another. And if you were here the very first week, that was where we started in this letter, where we discovered what Paul's advice was into praying for one another. And we made those little cards and said, here's how we do it. Here are nine areas to pray into each other's lives. And I know many of you have been using those. Because how we pray for each other and what we pray for each other really does matter. And so Paul is saying, folks, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Make sure you practice this holy habit of praying for people and never underestimate the spiritual dynamic that is involved. And he knows that that requires discipline and it requires commitment. And we all know that. And that's why Paul writes, devote yourselves to it. Because unless you devote yourself to it, you'll lose it. And time and time again, it requires a renewing of our determination and it requires a persistence. I really don't meet many people who find praying easy. 
The number of people who show me, I, I struggle with this. I've been a Christian for years and yet I still struggle to pray. And Paul recognized that he's a realist and he says, that's why you need to devote yourselves to this. It requires that sort of level of commitment, determination. And so the question it throws up, and it throws up to me at least, is this. How's my prayer life been this week? Has it been an act of devotion? Have I been devoted to it? Or has it been sporadic? Has it been rushed? Has it been grabbed? Has it even been non-existent? Because prayer doesn't just happen. And I know we can snatch quick one-liners. And we can utter a few words as we race out the door. Or as we sit killing time in a waiting room or a traffic jam. But to devote yourself to prayer means that you consciously set aside time, fence it round and commit ourselves to it. And one of the things I said this morning if you're here is that starting next Sunday night as a Lent series, we are going to consider the importance of setting aside time, of fencing it of committing ourselves to holy habits. And as part of a a Lent uh, project as such, Joel here, who's here this evening, has prepared this little daily reflection to be used throughout the next 40 days. And there are plenty of these left, so please do take one of those as you leave this morning. But starting next week, we're going to spend every Sunday night up until Easter looking at the importance of setting aside time in prayer and in silence, and in solitude, and for fasting, and for confession, and to express joy. Those spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith that we know are important, but as I said this morning, we often keep losing sight of. So one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is a devotion to prayer. And a second distinguishing mark of those who follow Jesus is that our relationship with those outside of the church should be characterized by wisdom. And there are three things that seem to be uppermost in Paul's mind. Because wisdom means that we will be sensible in our actions, alert to opportunities, and gracious in our speech. It's there just at the end of the verses we read. You know, if we want to be effective witnesses for Christ in our day-to-day lives, whether that's at home, at work, at the rugby, the football, whatever, the school gates, then these are three aspects of Christian living that we've got to take seriously. How we live and how we speak have got to be consistent. And I know this is a reoccurring theme. Because unless they are consistent, we may never commend our gospel to an unbelieving world. The early church clearly had, had issues with this. And so Paul had to keep writing to them about this gap that was developing between their belief and behavior. So he seemed to have to keep writing to them about sexual immorality, about their drunkenness, about their lying, about their anger, about their filthy talk, about their lack of self-discipline. And so he says, and remember, he was writing to Christians. Who's going to be attracted to a message of transformation, says Paul, when your life is so patently at times untransformed. And so he says, be wise about what you do. Be wise about what you say. And first century Christians needed to hear that, and I know you would probably agree with me, 21st century Christians still need to hear that. And the specific advice about our speech is interesting. 
And again, if you're here this morning, I'm, I'm picking up something I said this morning. But our conversations must be full of grace. They must be kind. They must be courteous. They must be seasoned with salt. It was interesting the number of people, in a sense it was a bit of a throwaway line, although it's a line I've used many times before, but the number of people who did speak to me afterwards and say, David, you know whenever you said that bit about how I speak to the person from the call centre who rings me up? Do you know? And, and the number of people who did, <laughs> it's almost as if they were confessing to me. Uh, I said, that's, that's not what I'm about. Uh, but is, isn't it so true? That, that ask it, you know, we praise God with our lips and we sing the songs and then we go home and someone rings us randomly from a call centre and we voice off to them. And you just think, like, what's that about? And so that's why I do believe what we say and how we say it matters. Because if what we say and how we say it is not consistent with what we believe, then I think we cause ourselves all sorts of problems. And I think that's what Paul was picking up here whenever he says, listen, be gracious in your speech. Make sure it's marked by purity, it's wholesome. Make sure you know how to answer everyone. Note, it's, it's not about answering every question. But it's about knowing how to answer everyone in a way that commends the gospel and doesn't confuse it. So there will be questions you'll get asked, which you will not have answers to. None of us will at times. But how we answer people, the words we use, the tone of our voice, that often is what can speak volumes irrespective of the actual answers we give. You see, and you know this, that all the research done into why or how people get converted shows that the overwhelming reason is not that they are attracted by clever arguments or slick answers, but they are attracted by people who reflect so much of the content of the gospel. So people who are forgiving and who are loving and who express mercy and kindness and compassion and care and concern and integrity. That's what screams at people, particularly people in a postmodern world where authenticity and integrity says so much. Making the most of opportunities is about living the life as well as sharing our faith verbally. And yes, there is both a, there's need for both. It's not either or. It's got to be both and. And so as we leave here in a few moments to start another week, my encouragement to you based on these verses is to leave here to worship. To leave here to do whatever you do as, you're, as if you're doing it for the Lord. And that in our relationship with God and as we relate to people in our communities and in our workplaces, that we will be devoted to prayer. And that we'll be, we will be wise in how we conduct ourselves with those who are not yet Christians. And in all of this, may God help us.